little bit biased at this point, but I couldn't help but notice that some of you sing a little better now that you've got your hair cut. <laughs> I may be off, but I'm not. It's just an observation. The uh, story is told of the middle-aged woman who had a heart attack taken to the hospital while on the operating table. She had a near-death experience. Seeing God, she asked him if this was it. God said, no, you have exactly 40 years, two months, and eight days to live. So upon her recovery, she figured while she was in a hospital, she decided to have a little work done. So she had a facelift and liposuction, a breast augmentation, a tummy tuck, and she even had her hairdresser come to the hospital and uh, take care of her hair coloring and cut before she left. And she figured that since she had such a long life ahead of her, another 40 years, that she'd make the most of it. So as she was leaving the hospital, after all the operations and while crossing the street, she was hit by an ambulance and killed immediately. Arriving in front of God, you can imagine she was a little bit upset. She said, I thought you said I had another 40 years to live. What happened? And God said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you. I love that. I love that story. And the reason I really enjoy that story, especially at this point in my life, is because there are times I look in the mirror and I kind of startle myself. I think someone's following me. You know, I've lost 55 pounds, muscle mass, now my hair's gone. And you know, and on this cancer coaster, I can relate to folks who write in to be candidates for the Extreme Makeover program. How many of you have ever seen that Extreme Makeover thing? You know, they started with bodies and they moved their way up to houses. But uh, it, all, it started with bodies at first. And it's like we're obsessed with, in our culture with giving, you know, ourselves makeovers. You know, noses, mouths, 492,000 breast augmentations a year in the United States. Liposuction, facelift, tummy tuck. Uh, show of hands, how many of you had some work done? <laughs> Well, I didn't know if anyone would catch that or not. I was like, left hand, show up your left hand. Uh, keep that up, ushers, are you keeping track? It's like, you know, it's like, it's, you know, this work that, you know, we're doing, it's like, it's just something that's kind of fascinating to me now because I could use a little work done. But uh, in our ongoing series of messages focusing on living in light of eternity, uh, we're going to follow up on an event we became aware of in our last message, and that is the resurrection of the body. If you recall from um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes of the day that the dead in Christ will rise first. And the word rise or be raised is resurrected. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. And then Paul writes, we who are alive at that time when Jesus comes back will be caught up with them or translated in a twinkling of eye, 1 Corinthians 15 that we'll see, will be changed and transformed. We'll have resurrected bodies. These bodies that we have, as I mentioned in one of the messages, a few messages back, these collapsing tents. Uh, will be raised and glorified. 
and changed and they'll be never, uh, they'll, they'll never be like what we're dealing with now. And uh, the truth of scripture is that a day is coming when we will receive the ultimate makeover. So for those of you who are getting a little bit discouraged by what you have left to work with, and financially it's just not possible to get some help, just look forward to the day that you will have the ultimate makeover. Because God is the surgeon, the great physician, who will be doing the work. And man, I'll tell you what, there was a point in my life, and there's, you know, some of you younger people, you're feeling pretty good about what you look like, and, and uh, I, I, I can relate. <laughs> I used to be there, <laughs> but I'm not there no more. <laughs> and so, uh, to get a better overview of what the resurrection entails... You know, rather than trying to fix up and repair these collapsing tents, you know, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be just like Jesus. And what a wonderful thought that is and what a wonderful truth that is. But to get a better overview of what this resurrection entails, turn with me in your Bible to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take a look at this entire chapter. Um, Not necessarily today, so don't get nervous. But uh, we'll look at uh, some of it, and I'll decide when we stop. (laughs) That's the cool thing about this physician. (laughs) One of them, anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Let's read down through uh, verse 19. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain on until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that means that not even Jesus was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
as we read through this passage, there are several things that I want to point out. But before we do that, we need a little bit of background, a little history. Kind of like when we first started the series, you know, why do we die? We went back and we looked at the book of Genesis. The reality of our mortality is found in the disobedience or the rebellion of Adam. The Bible says that when Adam rebelled against God, sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, with it, it brought forth death. The wages of sin or the consequences of sin is death. And uh, we know now that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's important that we understand some history. And if you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 7, it'll help us to understand that, you know, where the Bible talks about the fact that we are body, soul, and spirit. And it's important to realize that we're not just spiritual beings, that we are also physical beings, but at the same time we're spiritual as well. And it's important because there are those who claim that the physical world is the world that is filled with sin and therefore we should be separate from it. And there was a philosophy or school of thought that there was nothing good in the physical body whatsoever. And that to be stuck in physical bodies through eternity would be somewhat of a, you know, somewhat of almost a crime. You know, that we wanted to be freed from these, you know, bodies that we're in. And yet the Bible teaches very clearly that we are body, soul, and spirit. And so in Genesis chapter 2, look at the sequence or the order of event that took place when God created man. He said, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Notice carefully the order or sequence of events. First, God took dirt or dust, and he formed man. Then God breathed into this form the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God took dirt, took dust, made our frame, breathed into it, and we became a living being. The point of this is to remind us that Adam became a living being when God joined his body, this dust, this form that he made, and his spirit, the breath of God, joined them together, he became a living being. See, Adam was not a living human being until he had both physical and spiritual components. And that's clearly what we see. So the essence of humanity is not just the spirit, but spirit joined with our bodies. And our body doesn't just merely house the real you. It is as much a part of you as your spirit is. That's why when we die and we're absent from the body and we're present with the Lord, even if God gives us in the intermediate heaven, which we talked about, a temporary form, we will not be content until we have our resurrected body because God never made man separate from his body. So as we are absent from the body and our body goes into the ground or, you know, cremated or, or, or buried or blown apart in an accident of some sort, whatever happens to our body, the bottom line is, is that our spirit will never be completely at rest until we're reunited with the body that God has given us. And so it's important to understand that even if we have a temporary form, we're going to have a resurrected body, that God is going to take the bodies that we have now and transform them into something that's glorious beyond understanding. 
we'll get a feel for what that's going to be like as we go through Scripture, but I don't think we'll fully appreciate a lot of the things that we've been talking about until we experience them firsthand. So going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is going to argue exactly the point that I just made, that without a a resurrected body or without the body, then you know what? Um, We got some problems. But the first thing I want to bring to your attention is in verses 1 through 4, and that is the prominence of the resurrection in the gospel. Notice uh, chapter 15 again, verses 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and now on which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures. In these first four verses, the apostle gives uh, absolute clarity as to the essence of the gospel and its effects on the lives of those who accept these facts. And the Christian faith is based on facts. It's not based on wishful thinking. It's not based on, you know, emotions and feelings. It is based on factual evidence that we can examine. Notice, first of all, in order to believe, we must hear. The Apostle Paul said, I preach to you what I also received. The facts of the gospel must be presented to us And that's exactly the same argument that Paul made to the Romans. If you turn back to the book of Romans in chapter 10, notice very carefully that a person must hear the facts of the gospel before they can believe. And it's very important that we understand that because we have people who claim to believe something, but they've never heard the facts of the gospel. It's like, well, yeah, I believe in God. Well, but that's not the facts of the gospel. You know, well, I go to church. Or I believe, you know, in God, I go to church. uh, You know, all these things. It's like, but wait a minute. Those aren't the facts of the gospel. And 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 the facts of the gospel must be heard and then received before one can be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God for sin. And so he says very carefully that I heard the message. What is the message? And we can't believe the message until we hear the message. And so he says again to the Romans, starting with verse 9 in chapter, verse 9 in chapter 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Facts of the gospel. But, he goes on to say, for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, who? In Jesus, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, I want you to notice very carefully, you know, God could have chosen to deliver this message to mankind in a variety of ways. But he chose to use those of us who have heard the message, heard the facts, believed on those facts, received them, trusted in Christ as our Savior. And then we have a responsibility, you know, not only had we heard the facts, we believe the facts, we stand on or we live according to those facts that we say that we believe, and that we are saved from the wrath of God or judgment of God for sin, and there's a sequence of events that takes place. And so we need to understand and be very careful. There is a very specific message that God wants people to understand and believe. It's not, it's not vague at all. It's, it's very specific. And he has a very specific process by which this takes place. You cannot believe in Jesus until you've heard about him and what he's done. You can't arbitrarily say, well, I just believe in God and that's good enough to get to heaven. Because we know that, you know what, apart from faith in Christ, believing that he died on the cross, believing that he is God's Savior, that he is the one who has come and lived a perfect life and shed his blood on the cross for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he is alive today, and the message of God is the same as it's always been, and that is that Jesus died for our sins, therefore we must repent of our sins, that he raised, he was buried, that he was raised again from the dead, and that whoever receives him or trusts in him becomes a child of God to those who believe in his name. And so it's a very specific message. But before we look at the heart of the message and, and get back to it, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But there, you know, from Romans, we get the sequence of events. How can you believe in him? How can you believe in Jesus if you've never heard of him? And, and, and how can you hear of them unless somebody tells you about them? And Paul said, I've just shared with you what I've also received. And that is the message that Jesus had to offer. And in Acts chapter 9, we can read about that. Saul of Tarsus. Well, when did he hear the message? Well, when Jesus came to him personally and delivered the message. But he believed what he had heard, and he heard it from Jesus, and he received it, and then he went about standing firm in it, and then he told everybody else about it. And so that's the sequence or order of event. But before we look at the heart of it, notice the prominence of it. He says that this is of first importance. There is nothing more important in life than to hear the message that God wants men to hear. I don't care what else you do. 
I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what ambition that you have. There is nothing more important than to hear what you need to hear in order to avoid the judgment and the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. And you will understand that when death is knocking at your door. Because the only thing that matters is do you have a right relationship with the God who has created you? Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Because if you don't, nothing else matters. Nothing. It is of first importance. And that is why as a church, it is of first importance that we preach the gospel. That we declare unto men the message of God. That God's will is that every person repent of their sin. Turn from sin and turn to God. And believe what he says. I love you. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die upon a cross. To shed his blood. So that you... If you will believe that he died for you and believe that he rose again from the dead so that you will not be held accountable for your sins but the righteousness of Christ will be imputed to you because that is God's will for man. There is nothing more important and because there is nothing more important there is nothing that the enemy will attack quicker than the preaching of the gospel. Churches will become social organizations who meet the physical needs of one another, which is a wonderful thing. Blood drives are a wonderful thing. It's part of our human experience. We need blood. I never realized it, but I know now. We need blood. And so, as I continue to get it every week, I realize that I'm grateful for people who will give it. I realize I'm grateful for people in our church who will give it. But you know what? But that's not going to save anybody from hell. It'll keep them alive long enough so that they can consider the facts of the gospel. And we've got to be careful that we don't become a social organization. Those things are fine. But you know what? At the top is the preaching of the gospel. And everything else we do after that falls into place wherever it falls into place. But we have to be committed to reach this world with the word of God because it is of first importance. And that's exactly what he said. There is nothing more important than preaching the gospel. Now, let's get something straight. If there's nothing more important than preaching the gospel and you and I are to be witnesses and we're to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel, this seems logical to me and reasonable that we would ask this question. What is the gospel? If we're to preach the gospel, and it's of first importance, nothing's more important than it, I hope that we know what it is. What's the gospel? He says, well, this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised 
from the dead, again, according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And you know why that's good news? Because the gospel doesn't tell us something that we must do. The gospel tells us what Jesus has already done. That's why it's good news. The gospel message is the following facts, or are the following facts. Jesus died for our sins. You sin, I sin. The wages of sin is death, that's why we're all going to die. We've all turned from God, none are righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't a person in this room who would say that they've never sinned, that they're perfect people. We're all guilty before God. And the good news is, Jesus died for your sins. We are to repent from sin, which means to turn from sin and turn to God. Jesus died for my sins. He was buried. He was resurrected. And the Bible doesn't tell us we need to do anything or add anything to it. For it's by God's grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so no one can boast. That is the gospel. That is the urgency behind the Great Commission of why we're to go into all the world preaching the gospel. Turn back to the book of Matthew and see the urgency behind and it puts it all together and we begin to understand it more fully because at the end of the day it comes down to the fact that you know what? Unless a person hears the gospel, they can't respond to it. And unless we're faithful to go out and tell people about the gospel, then they won't have an opportunity to decide whether they'll believe those facts and receive them for themselves or not. And so we've got a very simple job which is to go into the world and to convince people that they're sinners, which isn't that hard to do, because all you got to ask is one question, are you perfect? And you'll always get the same answer, because I gave it when I heard it for the first time. Chuck, are you perfect? No, but. No, but what? Well, no, but I'm a lot better than some of the people that I hang around. Well, that's not the question. Are you perfect? No, but. And that's where it always goes. No, but. I'm better than that person. You should see that person. Go talk to that person. I'm not that bad. You know, I'm, I'm ahead of that 70% bell curve. I, I know that I'll be okay. And it's like, no, but are you perfect? See, and that's why in, in Matthew 28, he says, but the, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee in verse 16 to the mountain which Jesus had designated. This is after his resurrection. And when they saw him... So he had a physical form because they saw him and what they saw they worshipped but some were a little bit doubtful and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me unto heaven and earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you well what did he command them well hey you know what Jesus died for our sins he was buried and he rose again from the dead and uh, and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age and so our responsibility is to go into all the world after the service today I'll go to the stadium and I'll go into the clubhouse and I'll go into a part of the world that God has opened the door for me to go and I'll talk to guys that are there and my responsibility is to make sure during the course of all of our interaction 
of prime importance, of first importance, is that they are very clear on what the gospel entails. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed that he died for you? Do you believe that he is raised from the dead? That's the gospel. You will go into a part of the world that God has opened up for you. And you'll go to work tomorrow in a place of business where you will work with people that maybe have never heard this message. And you have been entrusted with this wonderful message. There's nothing for them to do. It's just a question of whether they will receive that message. And so we are to share that with them. You will go into a part of the world that I don't have access to, and that's in your own personal families. And you'll have the opportunity to be able to share that message. And you will go into a neighborhood that you live that I don't, and you have neighbors that you have interaction with, and you have a responsibility to make sure that they understand the message so that they can act upon it one way or the other. I met with a fellow this past week, and he said, you know what, I love hearing you speak, and I agree with you on everything until you start to talk about the fact that there is no other way to get to heaven but through believing in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And I said, well, you know what, you're not the first person to have a problem with that, not the first person to stumble over that. I said, but the wonderful thing about it is, is that you clearly understand what I've been saying what the Word of God says, what the message is. So I was, you know, discouraged a little bit and disappointed that he would reject the message. But on the other hand, I was very pleased by the fact that he clearly understood the message. But he just didn't like what he heard. And so he's struggling with that. He's wrestling with that. And yet at the same time, you know what? That is the message of God. And so I shared with him. I said, you know what? You're a business owner, and you make the rules. And you're the one that's the ultimate authority. And you have people underneath you who say, you know, I either agree with those rules and accept them and submit to them, or I don't like those rules, and therefore I've got to decide whether I can continue to work for you or work underneath you or whatever, or maybe I need to go somewhere else. I said, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that you are the authority that sets the rules. So if God is the ultimate authority who sets the rules and says there's no other way to get to heaven but by, but by believing what I tell you about Jesus, then it's the same situation. You may not like the rules. You may not like God's ways. You may not like God's plan. You may disagree with it. But it doesn't change the fact that God is still the ultimate authority And what he says goes because that's what it's all about. It's God's way or our own rebellious way. And there's a way that seems right to men. Well, it seems right to men that every road leads to heaven. But its end is destruction because there's only one way to get there. And Jesus was very clear. There's no other way but through me. See, we struggle with that because that's part of our sin nature. You know what, and if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's exciting to see that, if you note, that all of these things that God has done are according to the scriptures or the written word of God. 
Jesus died according to the scriptures. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. I mean, just go back through, pick what you want. Genesis 3, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning. He died according to the scriptures. And he also rose from the dead according to the scriptures. See, Jesus died on the cross. That is an historic fact. The fact that he was buried following his death. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus knew Jesus was dead. The centurion soldier at the base of the cross knew that he was dead. Pilate knew that he was dead because he released the body to these guys. So everybody knew that he was dead. He was buried. He was raised or resurrected. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away with its Roman seal. And when the disciples came, they looked in the tomb and saw that Jesus His body was no longer there. And the reason the stone was moved away wasn't so Jesus could get out. It was so they could see in. Now, you say, well, why do you say that? Because, you know what? Jesus, in his resurrected body, showed up wherever he wanted. And if you read John chapter 20 when you have a chance... The Bible tells us the disciples were all afraid and they were locked in their room and in their midst, Jesus popped in. Now, that is one cool thing about the resurrected body. No, seriously, I mean, it's like if you're looking at the resurrected body and you think about something that's going to be really interesting to be able to do, it'll be able to pop in and out. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says, and we've got to be real careful about this, because there's nothing that says that what Jesus could do in his resurrected state is exactly what you and I will be able to do. But assuming that that's part of the resurrected, the ability of the resurrected body, now how cool is that going to be? We just got to pop in and out. He, they were behind locked doors. He showed up in their midst. And so it wasn't a question of roll the stone out so Jesus can come out. He could get out, and he did get out. They just rolled it away so they could look in and see he wasn't there anymore. So you say, well, what's the point? And what does this have to do with the resurrection one day of our bodies? Well, here's the deal. Death and resurrection is a complete package. We die only to be raised again. See, in this passage, is going to give us some insights to this truth. If Jesus had died for our sins and never been raised from the dead, then our sins would never have been forgiven. And that's the argument that he makes. His death and his resurrection are the two great pillars of the Christian faith. Jesus died and he was raised. So let's move on to the next one. And that's the proofs of the resurrection we see in verses 5 through 19. Look at verses 5 through 19. Let's read that. And this is where he lays out that the, the, uh, some of the convincing proofs or arguments that Jesus indeed raised from the dead. Now you've got to understand where we're going with all this. We need to understand that Jesus rose from the dead. Be convinced of that because... In order for you to be convinced that one day you'll be resurrected and you'll get the ultimate makeover, you have to believe that Jesus was resurrected and had that ultimate makeover. 
because it starts with him. And if he wasn't raised, we won't be raised. But if he was raised, and he was, and that's the argument of the passage, then one day we're going to be raised as well, those who have put our faith and trust in Christ. And that's a wonderful comfort, you know, as you consider what we have to look forward to and living life in light of eternity and the, and the uh, endurance that it gives us for today, the peace that it gives us for today, the joy that it gives us for today, is that we have these things to look forward to. And you know what? And they're as true as God's word is true. And so let's look at that. The proofs of the resurrection, starting with verse 5, he says, And then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And so he goes on and he talks about, and, and I, when I was going through and studying this, I just underlined, or actually I circled, the word appeared. He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as if it were one untimely born, he appeared to me. So four different times we see the word appeared. He showed up before them. He was in a physical form. They saw him. They handled him. They touched him. As John writes in 1 John, uh, the, the first epistle that he writes, he says, we handled the truth. Meaning that, you know, Jesus is the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that they actually touched him. They hugged him. Uh, they felt him. In Thomas's case, Jesus said, you know, go ahead and put your hands, you know, your fingers in, in my wounds and my wrists and my hands and put your f- fist in my side. I mean, he was a physical being. And so they saw him. He appeared to them. He, they touched him. They felt him. They ate with him. They spent time with him. They conversed with him. They had dialogue with him. He can continue to teach them about the coming kingdom of God. There was continuity after his life and after his death that continued on after his resurrection. It continued to go forth. And these are proofs or evidence, the appearances. But even more so than that, there were proofs that were in the first few verses that I want to point out. And in addition to what we just read about him appearing to people, Paul had also pointed out some additional proofs and the fact that the Corinthian church existed was a proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That these people who had denied the resurrection, they did not believe that anyone would ever be raised from the dead, and they never thought that there would be anything interesting to that, because they thought the body held the spirit back from being everything that it could have been. But it says that he, they heard the message. What was the message? Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. They received that themselves. Their lives were transformed by the will of God. They were born again. They were new creatures. Uh, they were, you know, transformed by the Holy Spirit. All the things that we read in Scripture, they weren't the same as they used to be. And they were walking in their faith. And one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection was their personally transformed or changed lives. And collectively, that there was a group of people that God had transformed or changed that now comprised the church that was now at the city of Corinth or the Corinthians. The fact that they existed as a church, as a body of believers, was a proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. The fact that we exist as a church or as a group of people who have been transformed by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that we've been born again by the will of God, that we are no longer 
old things have passed away and all things have become new. That you're not the same person and I'm not the same person. The fact that we continue to stand firm in our faith and walk in obedience with them in a manner worthy of our calling is, is, is proof that Jesus is alive. It is proof that he was raised from the dead. Because no dead Savior could do the work that has been done in my life and yours if you have trusted in Christ. That is a wonderful thing. Their faith was the real deal. The question I have for you is, is your faith the real deal? Have you heard the facts? And have you received the facts? Have you been born again by the will of God? Or are you just coming to church? Or I just believe in God. Or whatever that nebulous thing is or arbitrary thing is. Belief system in your life. The question is this. Can you say with confidence, I have believed that Jesus died for my sins. I have believed that he was buried. I have believed that he was raised from the dead. I have believed. And when I did believe and received that message... I was born again, and my life was never the same. And I continue this day standing firm and walking in a manner worthy of the fact that I have believed. I have believed. Have you believed? When have you believed? And what have you believed? And more importantly, in whom have you believed? See... Paul said, man, you know what? The fact that you guys are even here is proof that Jesus raised from the dead. Another proof in those first few verses is the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. Don't miss this. God put it in writing long before it ever happened. Jesus would die on the cross. God put it in writing long before it ever happened so that we can believe his word and trust what he has to say. 800 years before Christ ever walked the earth in Psalm 22, it said that God's Savior would be crucified before anybody knew what crucifixion was. And if they were standing at the cross and in Psalm 22, 1, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they went to the scrolls and they went to the scripture. They would have read in detail what crucifixion was all about and what Jesus was enduring right before their very eyes. And God put in writing. I'm going to put it in writing because it's trustworthy. I'm going to put it in writing so that you'll believe it. I'm going to put it in writing so that, you know what, long before these events ever take place, you'll realize that I'm in control of all things I'll put it in writing and not only will I put it in writing that he'll die on the cross I'm going to put it in writing that I'm going to raise him again from the dead and in Acts chapter 2 that's exactly the message that Peter preached that first great sermon where he said that he would not allow his holy one to undergo decay that he would raise him from the dead I'll put it in writing and God did what a wonderful and great proof that is Now, the other proofs of the resurrection we just saw as we were going through this is that he appeared. And notice this. It says he appeared first of all to Peter. And what a wonderful thing that is. Put yourself in Peter's shoes or sandals. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and realize what it must have been like for him. This strong man, this great, this specimen, physical specimen of a man. 
who was a leader of all the disciples, who was a fisherman, who was incredibly strong, and he was a man's man. Put yourself in his sandals when he told Jesus, I got your back. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to do anything to you. And he had that locked into his mind because Jesus had already rebuked him when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, but that's all right, I'm going to be raised again and I'll meet you in Galilee. And he said, oh no, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have God's will at heart, you got man's. And yet he couldn't get that out of his mind. And then before the garden, it's like, you know what, I got your back, don't worry about it. And Jesus said, before this night is over, you'll deny me three times. Before that rooster crows. And sure enough, that night, the rooster crowed. And Peter was a broken man. But the Bible says that God is a God of redemption. That God is a God of second chances. That God is a God of reconciliation. And there's no coincidence in Scripture. And there's a reason that his name, and he appeared first to Peter. There was no one more broken in that inner circle of believers than Peter. And he appeared to him, and he challenged him, and he called him out, and he said, do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Do you love me? Yeah. And I guess the question today for you is this, do you really love him? Have you really believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Are you walking with him? Do you really love him? And if you really love him, then Jesus said, then you obey my commandments. See, don't nod your head, I love him, and then be living in a way that's not pleasing to God. Because you're, you're a hypocrite. And, and, if, and you're a liar. You can't say you love God and love sin at the same time. Something's got to go. And so my encouragement to you is, hey, Get rid of the sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get rid of that. There's no room in the life of a believer for sin. Not when we say we love God. But he appeared to Peter first. And man, Peter was pretty excited about it. And Peter's life was never the same afterwards. And Peter had Jesus' back from then on. Peter died a martyr's death, proclaiming the gospel. What he had heard, what he had received, he proclaimed to others. They told him to shut up and stop telling people about Jesus. And he said, I can't help myself. And they said, we will kill you. And he said, you got to do what you got to do. And they crucified him. But he wouldn't allow himself to be crucified like Jesus He said, crucify me upside down. And they did. He appeared to Jesus. He appeared to Peter. Appeared to the 12. And then appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. It was probably in Galilee because he had told everybody, I'm going to Galilee. And as they were going to Galilee, there was a buzz as they were walking to Galilee. "Where, Where are you going? We're going to Galilee. Why are you going there? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he said to meet him there. We're going there. And they said, if you're going, we're going to go. And there's no doubt in my mind that by the time that they got there, there were 500 of them. And he appeared to all of them. Now, if you don't have 500 people hallucinating and making this up, Jesus 
was raised from the dead. Some of them were still alive at the time that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and that's what he meant by that when he said, most of them remain until now, some of them have fallen asleep. We've already talked about the euphemism for the fact that when people die, the body rests, fall asleep, blah, blah. So that's what he meant. Some, some of these people died, but most of them were still alive, and if you doubt what I'm saying, just go talk to them, and they'll tell you that they saw him. He appeared to James which is an interesting thing because James was his half-brother. And the Bible tells us that James, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, that James and all his family did not believe that Jesus was the Savior while he was alive. And it wasn't until after his crucifixion and his resurrection that they said, oh, our bad. You know, the hardest people to, you know, that's why Jesus said, you know, a prophet is without honor in his hometown and among his own people. You know, the hardest people to reach are the people close to us because, you know, for some reason, you know, they they don't think we have anything to offer. But if anything, it should be the most obvious to them because they knew what we used to be like. Think about this. Your family knows better than anybody just just how crummy you used to be. You know, talk about, you know, if you're perfect, not perfect, whatever. He said, no, I, I remember all the dumb things you used to do. It's like, well, then that should make it even easier to understand I'm not the same person that I used to be. I've been born again by the will of God. I've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. I, I, I'm no longer who I used to be, but I'm a child of God now. And, and if anybody should know that, it's you because you have a good basis for comparison. The rest of us, we see each other long, you know, a lot longer in the journey. We think, oh, that person's not that bad. And everybody that knows us, grew up with us, spent time with us, maybe shared a room with us, whatever it was that they did, they go, oh, no, I can tell you some stories. And you're glad they don't. But they could. See, he says, and, we, and he appeared. And then he appeared, least of all, to the apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Knocked him off his donkey and knocked him to where he had nowhere to look but up. And he was flat on his back. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he saw Jesus. And he revealed himself to him. And you know, you can read through secular history, and it's really fascinating because I've done this. I've read through secular history about, the, about Saul of Tarsus. And uh, how he was a great persecutor of the Christian church and the Christian faith. And in the same secular history book, the next chapter will be about Paul the Apostle. And you go, well, what happened to Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the Christian faith and those who followed Christ? Saul of Tarsus, who hated Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the Savior of the world, the one sent by God, the one if you put your faith and trust and hope in him, you would have the forgiveness of God. Jesus, the one he hated, and everybody that followed him. And it's like, okay, turn the chapter to Paul the Apostle, the great advocate of the Christian faith, the one who loves Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ, the one who proclaimed his message throughout all of the known world at that time until modern technology and people like Billy Graham were able to preach the gospel. Nobody reached more people than the Apostle Paul. And then you ask the question of your professor, what's up with that? 
How did this guy who hated Jesus be the same guy who loved Jesus and proclaimed the gospel to the point where he was killed too? And the answer is the resurrection. He saw Jesus alive and he was never the same. But they don't tell you that. They just go to the next chapter. See, Jesus and his resurrection, he was seen by the Apostle Paul. And it was an eternally life-changing experience. Saul of Tarsus became the great Apostle Paul. At this point, you're probably thinking, you know what, Chuck? I agree that Jesus was raised from the dead. You know what? And given a resurrected body, but what does that have to do with me today? And what does that have to do with my extreme makeover? And the answer is very simple. If you believe that Jesus received a resurrected body, then you must also believe in the resurrection of all from the dead. And that's the argument, and we'll close it with verses 12 through 19. Listen to what he says. And that's what he's saying. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say there is no such thing? But if there's no resurrection, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witness of God because we're going around telling everybody that Jesus was raised from the dead. We're going around telling everybody that we will be raised from the dead. And so we're liars if this isn't true, and we've witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if that's the fact. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been, not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still dead in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. And notice his argument is very simple. He says, if there's no such thing as the resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. But since he has been raised and has shown us by convincing proof that he was raised, then the resurrection is a reality. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Why? Because remember the message of the gospel. He died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. If Jesus just died and was buried and wasn't raised, then he's not the Savior because God said that his Holy One, his Savior, would die, be buried, and be raised. So he wouldn't fit the bill. He was killed. He was buried. He was raised. And it was all according to scripture. He's saying if there's no resurrection, all the apostles were liars because they proclaimed his resurrection. Now we know that they weren't liars because 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths and none of these people were even around when Jesus was arrested. Like Peter, they all denied him, but Peter was the only vocal one who said he wouldn't. But they all ran and they hid from him. And if you remember what I said, that when, they, when Jesus was resurrected and appeared to them, they had locked themselves in a room and they were afraid that they were going to be persecuted for being followers of Jesus. And, and you know what? And why follow somebody now that was dead and buried? 
married. You know what? Maybe we made a mistake. And so they were afraid of him. But when Jesus appeared to them in a resurrected body, that he was still alive, that he was resurrected, every one of them went out and began telling everybody about Jesus and shared the gospel. 11 out of 12, all of them were martyred or killed for telling people that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead. And they were all killed for it. Now listen, nobody dies for a lie when they know it's a lie. You may die believing something and then later find out it wasn't true and have that kind of conviction, but nobody dies knowing that what they're dying for isn't a truth. And if Jesus wasn't raised, I'll guarantee you that these cowards weren't going to die for a Savior who never raised from the dead. But since he raised from the dead, they were like, hey, and you know why they died? Because they weren't afraid to die. And you know why they weren't afraid to die? Because Jesus conquered death. And the reason that Jesus conquered death is because he was raised from the dead. And the reason that they went to their graves or their deaths is because they knew it wasn't the end of life, that it was just a bend in the road and that continuity would continue to come to go forth because Jesus raised from the dead and they continued their relationship as if there was never even a change in it except for now he had a glorified resurrected body. And lastly, if there is no resurrection, we have no hope. But the good news is that Christ has been resurrected. And since he's been raised from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead as well. That's the argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we look at verse 20. And this is what we'll pick up next time we get together. But notice what he says. But. But that's not true. The argument that there is no such thing as a resurrection. That's not true. And now let me tell you what is true. For now, what have we learned about the ultimate makeover, the resurrection? Number one, it, the resurrection along with Jesus' death for our sins and his burial is the foundation of the Christian faith. You must believe the facts, all the facts. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. The resurrection is physical and it's not spiritual. It is the reuniting of our spirit or our soul with our previous bodies. It is the glorification of our previous bodies. It's not a new body. God's going to take these bodies that we have and he's going to make them into something that we have never in our lifetime ever conceived would be possible when we look in a mirror at ourselves. He's going to take these bodies and he's going to raise them in glory. See, after his resurrection, Jesus said, it is, it is I myself, emphasizing to them that he was the same person in spirit and body, the same one who went to the cross. See, if, if, if resurrection meant that we were going to get a new body, then Jesus' old body could have stayed in the tomb. But it didn't. His old body was raised to glory. Our old bodies will be raised to glory. Just like I don't recognize myself today when I look in the mirror, I'm sure that when I have my resurrected body, I won't recognize myself, but I know I'll be the same person because God does good work. 
and, 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 the, and the bill's a lot cheaper. He, he paid the price. The point is this. The body that rose was the body that was destroyed. Only after resurrection, it was glorified. The next time we get together, we're going to look at the remainder of this passage and we'll learn to expect uh, what, what more to expect when we experience the ultimate makeover. But until then, uh, Paul wanted to emphasize in this first part of this passage one definitive truth and that is this. Jesus was raised from the dead and because he was raised, we will be raised. And I want you to listen to this next part very carefully. We will either be raised to everlasting life or everlasting contempt. We will be raised to everlasting life, those who have believed that Jesus died for our sins, buried and raised again. Those who have believed upon him will be raised to everlasting life. Those who don't will be raised to everlasting contempt or judgment for rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus for them. You're going to be raised, but to what? Everlasting life or everlasting contempt? And the decision is up to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. God, my heart goes out now to those who are here or listening who will be raised to everlasting judgment. They will have a resurrected body that will experience torment and torture for all of eternity for rejecting the gift that you have offered in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray right now that you would soften their hearts to receive Christ as their Savior. By praying a simple prayer, because you know the heart, the words aren't as important as the fact that their heart is right before you. God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And I believe the facts that I heard today, that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, according to your scripture. God, I receive that message. I receive him as my savior. And Lord, I pray that you will do in my life whatever it is that you want. God, give me that abundant life. May I be raised to everlasting life for trusting in Christ. For those of us, Lord, who have put our faith and trust in you at some point in our life, my prayer is that we live this life in such a manner that others would be attracted to our Savior and that we will have a sense of urgency of, of first importance to proclaim that message to the world in which you have me as an individual, whether it's to the sports community, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, teammates, God, may I proclaim boldly your message because there is no way a person can get to heaven without hearing the gospel and there's no way they'll hear until I open my mouth. And God, you do all the work for salvation is all of God 
And we trust you for the results. Give us the boldness. Give us your power. Help us to get over that hesitancy of worrying more about what people think of us than what we think of them and their eternity. God, break our hearts so that we can see people as you see them lost and on their way to hell. God, may we see you work in the hearts of those who trust in Christ and will praise you through all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.